for Children's Church. Aaron, if you could just turn off those lights. I was told by my grandson that there is a glow from those lights. I tried to assure him it's the glory of God about me, but he didn't buy it. He said, no, Pop, it's just your bald head. <laughs> so with that distraction out of the way, if you could turn to your Bibles to John chapter 4, we're going to return to the story of the Samaritan woman as Jesus confronts this individual with the glory of the gospel. And I'd like to read the first 15 verses. We read through verse 26 last week, so I hope that the context is still fresh on your mind. But we'll go to verse 15 this morning. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Father in heaven, as we turn to this part of our worship service and we hear from you, from the written word, the message that your spirit would give to your church, we pray that you enable us to be good listeners, that our spiritual ears and minds will be alert to the things of our God, and that our hearts are made sensitive by your spirit to receive them and to grow by them, to learn of you, and to become impassioned with you and for you. Father, we need what your spirit is willing to give to us. And I pray that you enable me to speak clearly and well on these things this morning, but that all of us may hear well as your people this morning, as your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I know that probably most of us have attempted to go out into the world or to fellowship with people or to attempt to engage people with the gospel itself. And this can be a challenge, especially as we live in a world that is sometimes in conflict and we have to admit there are times when we as believers enter into conflict with others, even if it's something we cannot help. And oftentimes, we cannot help that conflict. I remember um, confronting an individual on a very obvious and blatant sin, and I attempted time and time again to converse with this individual. They wanted nothing of what I had to do or had to say to them. 
and there was this tension or this conflict that had entered in. And I was out in the community one day, and I saw this person, and it took me off guard. I turned around, there he is. And I whipped around, and I greeted him, and I extended my hand, and he just went like this with me. He wanted nothing to do with me. You've been in those kinds of moments, I know. There are other times when we maybe go into a large shopping center, like a Walmart or something, and you see a person in conflict across the store, and do you not kind of head the other way to avoid that individual. We've had those awkward moments where we know we should try to make connection with people, but there is this tension or this conflict between us in the human realm. This is what we are witnessing here between a Jew and a Samaritan woman. And that Jew just happens to be our Lord Jesus Christ. And he does not carry those same biases that the Jewish community did. Last Lord's Day, we picked up our journey through John's Gospel here in chapter 4, where Jesus converses with this Samaritan woman by Jacob's well. In our previous study, we considered the preparation that God made in placing his son in this position to present the Gospel, not only to this woman, but to the Samaritan community. And our focus last week was on Jesus Christ as the preacher appointed by God to bring the message of salvation to this community. And we hopefully made some application from this passage on our own calling to proclaim the gospel. And it's my hope that because of our study of this text, that we become a bit more watchful for those opportunities, even those awkward moments, where we may have opportunity to represent Christ, to proclaim his gospel, and to show the world that Jesus that we have come to know and to love. As noted last week, Jesus has chosen to take the more direct route from the southern Judean area where he was into northern Galilee. And he goes straight through Samaritan territory. We noted also last week, this was not necessarily the common route with the more devout Jews who would go the longer distance to route around Samaria so they wouldn't have to enter into the defiled land. Now, not all travelers chose that longer route, but most certainly the devout religious rulers and even the rabbis would be accustomed to the longer route that avoided Samaritan territory. Jesus is himself one of those rabbis, but he chooses to go directly through what is considered enemy territory. And I proposed last week, which is what I continue to exhort today, Jesus did this deliberately because he was under orders from God to enter into that gospel ministry. It is quite possible Jesus did not know what he was going to encounter before he did encounter the Samaritan woman. But I have absolute confidence in saying that Jesus knew he had a work to do in this forbidden land, and Jesus always submitted to the will of his heavenly Father. And Jesus does not have to wait long for that gospel event to occur. He and his disciples pass by Jacob's well near the city of Sychar. He sends his disciples into town to buy food while he pauses for a needed rest near the well. And this is where he encounters this woman that comes to the well for water. We witness here in the first six verses the effect of our Lord's humanity in his weariness, his hunger, and his thirst. And it's the Lord's human neediness, you will notice, that gives opportunity for his ministry to this Samaritan woman. And this is where our study is going to pick up this morning 
in verse 7, and I want it to carry down through verse 15. You have a note sheet, and you can follow along if that's helpful to you. It's while Jesus is resting near the well of Jacob that the Samaritan woman arrives to draw water. And this is where we consider maybe a little bit of well-advised speculation. It is around noon, it's the hottest time of day, and it is the custom of this time, at least we know historically, for the ladies to come to the well during the cool of the evening. And that just makes sense. Carrying water in those jugs was heavy and hard work. They're going to avoid that heavy and hard work during the hottest part of the day. And so apparently it was the custom to reserve that work for later in the evening when it was starting to become cool again, perhaps even in the morning. Now with this lady, I suppose it is also true that if for some reason a household's going to run out of water, you're probably not going to wait till the evening, right? You're going to say to yourself, it's the hottest time of the day, but we can't wait. Some event came up, the children had extra dirty hands, we ran out of water. So you're going to go get more. So it's always possible that this woman has come to the well out of need. But most scholars will speculate at this point that she has come to avoid the social tension that she experiences from even her own Samaritan community because of her moral reputation or lack of a moral reputation. She may be doing her water fetching at this time to avoid the scorn of her own community. To be sure, she was something of a social outcast. At the same time, we must note, at the end of this story, please observe that this woman does go back into her city, and she encourages some of the town people that she believes that she has met the Messiah. And those townspeople, and it mentions even men, listen to her, and they come out to see Jesus. So whether or not she's at the well, at this moment that Jesus is at the well, because she is feeling some sense of social scorn from her own community, it is mere speculation on our part. The scripture simply does not tell us the reason that she's there at that moment, but we know this is a divinely ordained moment. It is a gospel event that God the Father has arranged. And the Son of God is there submitting to the will of his Father and prepared to give the message of the gospel. Now, to begin with, in verse 7, 8, and 9, we want to consider something of the setting for this gospel presentation that we're about to witness, especially as we look at verse 10 and then in verse 13 and 14. But the gospel event that is arranged by God finds Jesus and this woman to be alone here at Jacob's well. There are no other ladies from town drawing water that are mentioned in the scripture, and the Lord's disciples are not there. They've gone in town to get some lunch. And this means that Jesus cannot ask one of his disciples to draw some water as he might otherwise do. And it's rather apparent he can't draw it himself because he has no bucket or rope to draw it with. That we learn in our text as well. This opened up then the opportunity for a dialogue between Jesus and this woman that now shows up at the well. It's been said by several authors of this gospel that if you want to engage the world with the gospel, a good opening is to seek their help in some way, ask their advice, make use of their skills, make use of their services, 
even if you have to pay for those services to fix your car or whatever. Do you notice Jesus is using an opportunity that you and I will have in life as well? And as they're pointing out in this story, Jesus asked this woman for something. And this is a very disarming kind of an approach because of the hostility that we're going to learn about between the Samaritans and the Jews. Jesus, by asking for a drink from this woman, is now disarming this woman just a bit by asking for her help. And you can see in human relations, especially where there are contentions, how this would have been a wonderful opening for the proclamation of the gospel. We can learn from Jesus in this. And what adds to the drama of this gospel event is the moral character of this woman as John details for us in the conversation between Christ and this gal. And we'll look more at that reputation next time. But Jesus knows in advance, before we ever get to that part of Scripture, Jesus already knows the moral character of this woman. He knows the sinful history of her, her past without her even telling him. He also knows that she's in need of God's saving grace and he no more withholds that grace from her than he did from Nicodemus, that very devout Pharisee that we learned about in chapter 3. Both need Christ. Both need the gospel. And here in Samaria was a person of immoral character that God was drawing to his son because she needed forgiveness and restoration. And there is Jesus in his humanity who's in need of a drink of water. And so he uses that human need to open up a dialogue. But it reminds us again as we compare both Nicodemus with this woman that there is no righteousness in even the most devout of men that can accomplish salvation. And by the same token, there is no immorality or sin that can keep us from God's saving grace. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are in need of the gospel, and both can be saved by that gospel. This is a praise thing for you and I, because probably we are more like the Samaritan woman. Jesus is here. He's hot. He's tired. He's thirsty. And in verse 7, he asked the woman for a drink of water. Verse 11 lets us know he had nothing to draw water himself with out of that well, so he looks to the only person who can help him, the Samaritan woman, with a checkered reputation. And this takes the woman off guard, and I think we could see that. We could sense that in verse 9. It's no secret to either this woman or Jesus that the Samaritans and the Jews were at odds with one another, and they had been for hundreds of years. These two people groups regarded themselves as enemies, hostile to one another. And when the question is asked in verse 9, this woman is assuming that Jesus is her enemy. How is it that you're asking me for a drink? Since I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. The assumption here is that Jesus comes as a Jew as an enemy to this woman until he asks her for a drink. That's disarming, is it not? Jesus is showing just by the request, I don't regard you in the same way the rest of the Jewish community does. They would refuse to ask for a drink. Now the Samaritan history seems to be traced back to the split between the northern and southern kingdom. After Solomon had died, remember, Rehoboam, his son, became king. And he did not act kindly towards the northern tribes. So the northern tribes split away 
from the southern tribe of Judah. And because of it, they began to pursue their own idolatrous worship to the point that God gave the northern kingdom over to the Assyrians who led many of the Jewish people away back to Syria and they sent some of their own citizens to intermingle and intermarry with the northern tribes. And with that came idolatry, false gods and false religions. The Jews to the south then began to abhor the northern tribes. Well, we know that the southern tribes also began to pursue false religions and false gods, and God gave them over to the Persians, and it was under King Cyrus, the Persian king, that Ezra, remember, and Nehemiah were allowed to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls. The Samaritans came to offer their help at rebuilding the temple, and the southern Judea kingdom said, no, we don't want your help. So the tension continues to build. And they go back to the northern kingdom and, and they build their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And they decided we're going to worship God in our own way, contrary to the way that scripture directs the Jews to worship God. They became known as the Samaritans. And the southern Judeans would come up and destroy that temple, furthering the tension between these two communities. John adds a comment in verse 9 that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. That's a bit too vague here because the disciples went into the city of Samaritans to buy food. They were having dealings with the Samaritans, weren't they? They were buying their food. They were going to bring it back to Jesus. They were going to eat Samaritan food, a Samaritan lunch. So the term that we find here in verse 9, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, is a bit too vague. And in the original Greek language, it has more the idea of using the same utensils. And in context here, it means that Jesus and the Samaritan woman shouldn't be sharing the same bucket of water. Because it's the same utensil. And this is what took the woman off guard. First of all, that Jesus would speak to her. And secondly, that he would propose, we're going to share the same bucket to draw water from. This would have been a defiling act to the Jews. And we see from our story that Jesus Christ is not at all concerned to share that bucket with this Samaritan woman. He's not bound by the same prejudices. He does not hesitate to ignore what was wrongful thinking of that day, that a man should not speak to a woman, or that one so holy as Messiah should not share God's love with somebody so immoral as this woman. But even more, the words of Jesus show that man's bigotry would not be supported by the Son of God, such that he would not cooperate with the social expectations of a world that is motivated by sin and hatred. And this brings us, this setting brings us to the message itself in verse 10. There is this tension. There is this conflict. And Jesus comes and approaches this woman in such a disarming way, taking the woman off guard. And you can sense a little bit of her confusion in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And John interjects, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They don't share the same bucket of water. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, at first glance, it doesn't appear that Jesus answers her question. But in truth, he really does. She asks, how is it that you are wanting a drink from my bucket when you are a Jew? She's thinking in terms of Jesus regarding her as an enemy, hostile to her and her people. But the Lord's response assures her, you don't know me. And you need to know me. You don't know my mission, which is to give the gift of God's love. You don't understand why I'm here and why I'm standing before you now asking for a drink. Because if you knew who I was and what I came to give to this world, you would be asking me for a drink. You see, she does answer this woman's concerns. And if we might do a little commentary on the words of Christ, he is answering this woman by saying, if you only knew who I really am, if you knew why I've come to this world, you would know that I have come to share the gift of God's love with you, the gift that would grant you eternal life. And at this point in the conversation, Jesus talks to this woman about knowledge, what she does not know about God's gift what she does not know about Jesus Christ, the one standing before her asking her for a drink. It is in this very statement by Christ that compelled John to write this gospel. Remember, he said, I want you to know who Jesus Christ is, knowing him that you would believe and believing in him that you might have eternal life. So can you understand why it's important to John to include this story of the Samaritan woman? It perfectly fits the motif of this gospel narrative. So consider then the knowledge that this woman was challenged to know, beginning with knowledge of the gift, the gift of God. Jesus challenges the woman of Samaria on what she had yet to know about the gift of God that Jesus, Messiah, brings into this world. Now some have argued that the gift that Jesus refers to here is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we can see how, looking back to chapter 3, one would think that. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit, remember, brought that regeneration, you must be born again. It is a work of the Spirit. We're talking about newness of life. And that's a work of the Spirit of God. Yet at the end of verse 10, please notice that Jesus articulates that which is to be given by God the living water, or as verse 14 says, eternal life. Therefore, it might be better to see the gift as the whole context of gospel salvation in its fullness with all of its blessings, all of its intended graces. And that term then would not exclude the Holy Spirit since the term born again identifies the spiritual life that he comes to give. So the gift of God can be seen as the salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ that is awakened in the sinner by the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again and gives to us faith so that we would receive the forgiveness of sins and that we would enjoy the living water of eternal life. The knowledge of God's gift may be understood as simply the salvation of God through Christ Jesus, a faith that is granted to us by the Holy Spirit who breathes new life into the dead souls of sinners. This salvation provides eternal life 
as the living water given by God's Son. And what undergirds this knowledge of the gift is that this woman did not yet know that she needed this gift of God that Jesus speaks of. In just a moment, as we press forward in this text, this woman is going to confess to Jesus that we Samaritans, we worship God in our way, so she at least had some confidence in her system, her Samaritan system of worship, that set her in a right standing before God. So there she stands before Jesus, not even knowing that she needs the gift. Before anyone understands the gift of God so as to take hold of it, they must see their need of such a gift. And therefore, there's some points that we need to observe in regard to the knowledge of this gift. First, they must know, sinners must know, this woman must know, that we are great sinners who have broken the laws of God's righteousness and must stand before His judgment throne one day. They must know that their sin has left them condemned before God. They must know also that they have no ability or righteousness by which they can save themselves. And that was clearly communicated to Nicodemus in chapter 3. But this would also include this Samaritan woman, as immoral as she is, who apparently is resting on the Samaritan system of worship to set her right before God and her own people as well. So when Jesus said to you, if you knew this gift, he is letting this woman know, challenging this woman to know, you have need to take hold of this gift. Your system of religion will not work. And your immoral sins before God are great. You have need of a Savior like this. And in addition to those first two points, Jesus tells the woman that if she knew, she would ask. You would be asking me for a drink. What was to be known from this is that the gift of God must be taken hold of by faith. We saw this in the explanation to Nicodemus about the serpent that Moses raised up on the staff in the wilderness back in chapter 3. Those who believed God, bitten by the snake, were sure to die because of the poison. If they believed God and they looked at the serpent on the staff, they would be saved from death. Jesus then continued, remember, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. In the same way, Jesus now says to this Samaritan woman, if you knew the gift of God, you would be asking me for it. You would be asking for that eternal life. So you can see how Jesus is challenging this woman To know her need. If you knew the gift. If you know what that gift is that God had provided through His Son. And that you have need of that gift. You would be asking for it. Is this not the same approach that we would have to our unsaved family or friends or neighbors? They need to know what the gospel is. What the gift of God is. They also need to know their need of it. And that we by faith take hold of that gift of salvation. Second, the woman was absent of the knowledge of the one that was giving that gift. So Jesus challenges her, you need to know the one that's standing before you. You lack the knowledge of the giver himself. If you knew the gift of God and 
who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Both the gift and the giver need to be known. Jesus now tells this woman that he has the power and the authority to give eternal life to fallen mankind, a life-giving work that only God himself can do. He's declaring to this woman, I am more than just a man, and that's going to enter into the conversation in just a moment. I am God. This was the objective of John in writing this gospel account, that men may know Jesus Christ. So it should be, again, no surprise to us that this story is important to John's narrative. It's important to this woman as well. She too needed to know Jesus Christ and who he is. It's very evident to her that Jesus, the one she later knows to be Messiah or suspects to be Messiah, there he is in his humanity. That's unmistakable. He's tired, he's weary, he's hungry, and this man needs a drink. But as John has already written, she needs to know that this same thirsty Jesus is the creator who has eternally existed with God because he is God. And in him, in Christ, in the word, there was life and the life was the light of men. And his light is now shining before this sinful woman and he offers her the life that he alone can give because he is God, the giver of life. It is at this point in the discussion that the Samaritan woman is puzzled by this presentation that Jesus gives of eternal life, that Jesus would somehow give her living water. She is still now thinking in terms of literal water found in Jacob's well. And in verse 11, she questions Jesus as to how he thinks he can draw this water up and give her a drink. The well is too deep. Jesus has no rope or bucket. How is this going to happen? The analogy that Jesus uses of living water, she seems to understand in a more physical sense. The water gives and sustains life. She gets that part of it. Jesus is thirsty. A drink of water would refresh him. She understands that. And if men and women went too long without water, they would die. Water is physically life-giving. She seems to comprehend that much. But what she does not know is that God's gift is eternal. And the giver of that gift is God himself. She doesn't see that in the man that stands before her. So her ignorance of Jesus Christ is then exposed in the question she puts to Jesus in verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of himself and his sons and his cattle? The answer to that question is yes, Jesus is far greater than Jacob. He is the Son of God. The Samaritan woman has not yet come to know the one who asked her for water and at the same time offers to her living water. And this takes us to verses 13 to 15, which is the promise that comes with that message, the promise that comes with that gospel presentation. In verses 13 to 15, we see the response of Jesus to this woman's confusion, and we witness, I think, her heart being softened by the promise that Jesus makes to all who drink of his life-giving water. Verse 13, Jesus answers and says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And then the woman's response says to him, Sir, 
give me this water so I will be thirsty no more nor come all the way here to draw. It's rather clear from the woman's response here that she's intrigued by the promise. She asks him for this water. Jesus now asked her for a drink of water. You know, in the story, we never do find out if Jesus got a drink. That's not the point of the story, is it? John's really not concerned to relieve our curiosity to see that Jesus actually got a drink from this woman, although I have no doubt that at some point in this conversation, she got the man a drink. But here she is intrigued by the promise. And she asks him, give me then this water. She still does not know the gift of God. She still does not understand the one who is standing before her offering this water. But she does realize that Jesus is unique. And she likes the sound of the water that he's offering. She seems to believe that Jesus can give her something special in this water that he offers. What has clearly caused this interest is found in the promise that Jesus makes to all who drink of his water. The gift that he gives comes with a promise. Now, I've noted on your, your note-taker, your note sheet, three points that we need to observe in this gift. Now, on the second point, I've put the scripture in the wrong place. That Psalm 42 belongs in uh, the first heading, but... Or, Wait, no, it belongs in the third heading. I'm not sure where I put it in your note sheet. I just know I made a mistake. So at any rate, we'll get to that. But as we look at the gift that has been described by this promise in verse 13 and 14, first observe that this gift is universal. It is universal. The invitation is for all. Everyone who drinks water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that Christ gives will never thirst again. Now, be careful with this distinction because the gospel is not universal in its effect. Not everybody is saved because Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross. Some will reject Christ. In fact, most will reject him and they will end up in eternal hell for that decision. But what Jesus is showing is that the offer, the invitation for the gospel is universal. What is clear from this Jewish man speaking to this Samaritan woman is that this offer crosses boundaries, social, political boundaries, the boundaries of separation between the sexes even, men and women, such that Jesus says, whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst again. So the gift is offered to all. The gift is universal. Second, clearly the gift is also eternal. Unlike physical water, to drink of Christ's salvation brings an end to man's thirst. The promise is that men will never thirst again, and what Jesus gives to believers will become within them a well of water springing up to eternal life. And this teaches us that we're not merely talking about a future eternal life, but life eternal that begins the moment that we receive Christ, that we take of that water. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, reminds us that because of our sins and trespasses, we are dead to God. We are spiritually dead to Him. Romans 6, 23 adds that the penalty or the wages of sin is death. So we know that all men have sinned. All men are subject to that death. 
but those that would want life from God, the gift of God, by faith receive that. And according to Romans 6.23, the gift of God is then eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God declares that both saved and unsaved will experience eternity. Both will face eternity. The unsaved face an eternal destiny that is entirely absent of God and all of his graces, all of his perfections, his love, his beauty, his peace. And they will for all of eternity face the judgment or the wrath of God. The saved, on the other hand, will enjoy all of the blessing of God's full display of glory. In addition, those future blessings are also enjoyed at least in part in this present life as the life that Christ gives is now springing up, as it says, within the internal man, within the believer, springing up in them to eternal life. And third, please observe from the promise that the gift is effectual. It is effectual. This well of water that springs up to eternal life teaches us that the gift of God causes something to happen. It affects a change where once the sinner had no desire to drink, now he is thirsty for the water that Christ gives. He takes it. He never thirsts again. There's a change of desire that has taken place here. What is described in this passage is that God has caused an effectual change in the heart of the sinner. And this is where I want us to see Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. Because the psalmist describes this desire that is now found in the spirit-filled believer. The one that has been brought back to life, born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God. And the psalmist gives testimony to that in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Do you see why Jesus uses the analogy of water? It was well understood even in Old Testamental times. What the psalmist writes of here is man's longing for a relationship with the living God. Sin has separated us from that close fellowship with God. And what is lacking in most men is to even have a thirst for eternal life. The thirst for the water that Christ gives. Because not all men would be willing to say, my soul pants for God, the living God. Most men don't desire that. Most men don't thirst for that relationship with God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who must awaken men to their spiritual need for God's living water. And until that happens, men will refuse to come to the light of Christ because as John chapter 3 says, they prefer their darkness. They prefer the appetites that are satisfied with the darkness of their own sin. And they don't want to come to the light for fear that the darkness of their sin would be exposed. They don't want their appetites changed. They don't want their desires taken away. The darkness of sin will satisfy man's temporal desires for a moment. It will quench the thirst of man's lust for pleasure for a short season. But it cannot fully satisfy. And you and I know as believers it can't last. The one who drinks of the water that Jesus gives has been given a thirst for more than what is, this broken life is going to offer. They thirst for something eternal 
They thirst for something heavenly. That is the believer's thirst. And if you're a believer here this morning, you can give testimony to that. My appetites have been changed. In Isaiah 55, as Tim read this morning, God invites His people through the prophet Isaiah to come to Him and to drink. Drink from His mercies. Find forgiveness. Experience the compassion of the Lord. And it says in Isaiah 55, there is cost involved. But those who thirst for God pay nothing and they give no money. Someone has paid that price. And that is prophetically pointing us ahead to Messiah, isn't it? It is Christ Jesus that paid that price. It's a costly drink that you and I have taken from the Lord. And so the scripture says, come, buy from me this water, but you pay nothing. There is no cost to you. Jesus Christ has paid that price. Isaiah 55 is a beautiful prophecy of the water of God's eternal salvation that was provided through the sacrifice of His Son. It invites men and women to come to Him and live, to find pleasure in the abundance of God's mercy and His kindness. But this desire for God's salvation comes to men through the effectual proclamation of God's Word. My Word does not go out from me. God says, without accomplishing everything I intended to accomplish. That's what we're witnessing in John 4. Jesus Christ is preaching the gospel word to this woman. And it will not return to God void because God has sent His Son on this mission, on this ministry to this woman. This is the effectual call of God in drawing men to drink of His saving grace. It's the effectual call of God that gives to us, you and I as believers, the desire for Christ and for His atonement. We can see in the Samaritan woman that God was drawing her to His Son in that she expresses a desire for the eternal water that Jesus promised to give. We cannot say that she is yet a believer because she still seemed to think in terms of physical water and not the spiritual water that Christ gives. She's still thinking in terms of Jacob's well there in verse 15. She doesn't want to be thirsty again. That much she knows. I don't want to keep making these trips back to the well. You can see her mind is fixed a bit on the temporal at this point. But God has stirred in her heart a desire for what Jesus has promised and I believe that in verse 15, we're beginning to see the movement of that heart. Now, there's more to say in this story, and we're going to continue to examine this next Lord's Day. But for today, we're going to end with a few thoughts from our text that I believe will encourage us and the gospel ministry that we have to others. First, God calls whom He wills. As a church that believes in the sovereign grace of God, I know that you know this. God calls whom He wills. And we don't ever want to make the mistake of thinking that God prefers to save the clean and tidy people of this world. So the Samaritan story is important to us. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that God does not save many of the mighty and the noble of this world. Rather, God focused most of His saving grace on the foolish, the weak, and the despised, those that lack nobility. This is exactly who Jesus is reaching out to in Samaria with this gospel presentation. And you and I must do the same. I say that because we can be inclined, as I said last week, 
to favor the Nicodemuses. And we can look at the unsavory people of the world and we can say, no, I don't want anything to do with them. And I have to say that I've been guilty of this too. Let the story of the Samaritan woman encourage us that God calls whomever he chooses. We just need to be the voice of the gospel, the voice that represents the Son. Brings me to my second point. The world needs to know what it doesn't know. The world needs to know what it doesn't know. We saw that in verse 10 with a Samaritan woman. And Jesus challenged that woman to know the gift of God, know the gospel, and know the one who gives that gospel gift, the Savior himself. This is our objective, clearly, that the world would know through us what the gospel is and who the author of that gospel is, who the Savior is. This was an invitation to this Samaritan woman to come and examine Christ, examine his message. John writes this gospel narrative to reveal to men this knowledge about Christ and his gospel and our calling to preach to the world. What they do not know of Christ and his salvation is to show that Jesus is not only greater than Jacob and the patriarchs, but that he's greater than all because he is the Son of God. Lost souls must know of Jesus and his gospel. We must communicate this knowledge with our preaching and with our lives. And because they must know that from us, we have got to be careful not to distort this knowledge with either our voices or our conduct. We have to be careful with Christ. The church, remember, is the visible representation of Christ. We are the voice of his gospel. And because the world must know what it does not know, we have to be careful with our own conduct before the world and with the preaching of the gospel, with how we use our voices for the glory of God. Number three, enjoy the graces of life but be satisfied only with Christ. This is an important principle that we learn as Christians that are received of this water. Enjoy the graces of life, but be satisfied only with Christ. It is probably true that few of us here today as believers have come to the place where we are saying, I have never thirsted again. Now that's not to say that we have looked elsewhere for eternal life. To be sure, genuine faith in Christ means that we will never thirst again for a Savior or any other means of salvation. But it is also sadly true that many Christians embrace Christ by faith and yet they continue to quench their thirst on the passing pleasures of this life. And many of these pleasures that we could talk about are good and are to be enjoyed as graces or gifts of God. Family, marriage, these kinds of things. Even a healthy bank account can be a gift from God. But how many Christians, when they don't end up with that perfect picture, can say, I am satisfied in Christ? This is what Jesus offers in his gospel. We must never clamor after these things to fulfill our satisfaction in life, a satisfaction that only Christ can fully supply. And I think a good test can be to ask ourselves, is there anything that I would happily not give up in this life and still be satisfied in Christ? 
if anything from this life would strip away my satisfaction, should I lose it, it's unhealthy for me. But if I could lose all in this life and still be satisfied fully in Christ, then I know that there is a well of water springing up within me to eternal life. And should that not be enough for us? Notice the quote by, by Spurgeon on the back of your note sheet. Now remember, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. And I want to suggest to Christian Americans here this morning that sometimes we can be just a bit too enamored with things like marriage, family, the perfect bank account, the perfect job, the perfect career. What is exactly the perfect Christian life in America? It should be that when all else is stripped away, I still have Jesus. I still have my Savior. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give to us a heart that is fully satisfied in the one that has given us life, a life that springs up within us. We thank you for those temporal graces. If we happen to enjoy them this morning, we give thanks because they're gifts from you. But Father, if all of those things were taken away or corrupted by the sins of this life, the sins of this world, could we still say as your children, I'm fully satisfied with what you've brought into my life as my Savior. I pray that you would raise in us that passion, that contentment, and satisfaction in you as our Savior. And you may be glorified because of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.